I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with the pain. James Baldwin. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. Recently, we were able to celebrate the return of Sunisa Lee back home to the States and especially to Minnesota, and even more especially to the East Side. We held a parade and we basked in the glow of our, our hometown hero who brought home gold from the Olympics. It's not lost on us that at the same time, of course, we also had to deal with the nation's reaction to what they expected to see out of Simone Biles. Now, the extraction of blood for the sake of representing the country is nothing that's not lost on us. In fact, it's the very subject of many of our conversations. Even throughout this week, as we see that legislatures are still pursuing the passage of restrictions on what we can teach and can say to our, to our youth as we try to grow their collective consciousness, and also understanding that even at the state legislature, there are folks who would resist even policies that say, hey, you can't be an officer if you are affiliated with a, supremacist, a white supremacist organization. There's a whole lot that we are continuing to battle as folks try to actually put the work to the ground of changing rules and legislation and systems around the reckoning that we thought would continue to go underway. But we are realizing now that they are not happening unchallenged. And so that quote from James Baldwin is so prescient to me right now as I think about and reflect on the week's news. So, Miss Georgia, as we connect on the week's news, I'm reminded of the fact that we are still in the midst of having to push change. What's come up on your radar this week? Yeah, Anthony, we're definitely still in this this struggle for change. And one of the things that I've been paying close attention to is the redistricting that is underway. And we know that uh, oftentimes the way that communities are district can uh, you know, dictate what type of funding is allocated, what type of uh, voting power, you know, it, it controls so much. And so I've been paying close attention to how that uh, whole effort is, is panning out. In addition to that, you know, we are at this point where we are just weeks away from sending our children back to school. And the COVID cases um, among children are surging. Uh, 94,000 children in the last week have been tested positive for COVID. You have states like Arkansas that are running out of ICU beds for uh, pediatric cases. And so uh, the question I think at the front, forefront of many parents' mind is, is it truly safe for me to send my children uh, back to school if they're under 12 and are not old enough to be vaccinated. You know, I know this was a, a very important topic uh, in our household recently as well. Um, and I, I was reflecting in those numbers. Those numbers also show um, that just as last year when folks were choosing to uh, distance learning, that the representation of folks of color 
in that population of folks, uh, not only for children who are being in, uh, infected, but the complications that happen around that um, are are very disproportionate. And we're continuing to see um, this 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 pandemic expose uh, disparities that folks have been screaming about for a long time, but now is finally getting some airing. Um, it it, it uh, we found out recently in a recent episode of Counter Stories uh, that Representative Rena Moran, who's uh, the first uh, Black woman in uh, St. Paul to to serve in the in the legislature in that regard, um, is also the chair of the um, very powerful Ways and Means Committee, has required through that committee, that every omnibus bill, every financial bill that comes through that committee, in order for it to be heard, has to have some kind of statement that examines the race equity implications. Huge fight, got it through. I just realized, I just found out recently that that is the case for that committee and several others. So so that begs the question, as we look at these disparities and the effects of these, what are some of the decisions that you see folks starting to 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 make as a result of what you just described? Well, I think people are in some way sitting back and waiting uh, a little bit uh, longer to see if anything is going to change. We know that every day there's updates on on COVID, on the number of cases, vaccinations, all of that. And so I think some people are anticipating potentially another uh, shutdown. I also think that uh, parents are exploring alternatives. Uh, we've had conversations about um, homeschooling. We've had conversations about even in our own household, instead of sending our kids to preschool, hiring a nanny who would come into our home because it would be less exposure um, mm. than sending them into a classroom full of 20, 30 other kids who are also not vaccinated, right? So I think there's a, a little bit of this hurry up and wait. People are anxious, um, you know, and trying to do what they can to prepare, but also hoping that leadership makes uh, the best choice. On the other hand of that, we know that during um, distance learning, uh, Black students were disproportionately impacted um, in terms of the achievement gap, the academic gap. And so there's also this pressure to get our kids back in the classroom so that they can get caught up. So it, it feels kind of like a, a double-edged sword. You know, there's there's also a rise, and, and it's one of the things that that, that has been a result. It seems like a result. It, it, it may be coincidental as well, but um, it seems very much to be uh, in, in response to there's a lot of programs that are popping up that are starting to be unapologetically in support of the needs and the psyche of, of, of people of color. We Win Institute um, has launched their uh, We Win When We Read and We Win When Black Students Graduate. I love the the way that they they mark all of those um, um uh, Tidalayo Bidiaco um, is doing amazing work over there. And we see at the Center for the African Diaspora, there's many different um, programs that are actually building up um, to try to service the needs of Black children outside of the school context. And they're having to contend with the resurgence as well because it was a, it was, it, it seemed like there was a light to, of offerings that was about to be available. Um, not about to be, they still are going to be available, but they're going to have to contend with the same issues around how do we keep kids safe, especially populations that are overrepresented with the complications that COVID, COVID brings out. 
Um, I'm also seeing a proliferation at the same time of the continued misinformation that goes out there. You know, the 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 quote unquote breakthrough, um, uh, vac- uh, the breakthrough sickness uh, in vaccinated folks. I mean, we're still talking about uh, a vaccine that is 99.35 or something like that percent um, effective, right? So the breakthroughs that we're actually talking about are very small. They're very, very short. And, and but folks are, are, showing real concern and fear. Um, I'm, I'm in the process of, of, of recording PSAs and folks, uh, I'm seeing a rise in a number of people who are showing wariness for the vaccine for continued misinformation in addition to other kinds of misinformation. And so all of this is coming, to, coming into uh, a school season <laughs> where we got to go back into the schools still battling some of the same things we were battling when the pandemic hit and I'm, I'm assuming it's going to continue to happen with with the responses to the to the continued trials that have to come. They're still in that season of having to battle all of that. Yeah, I, I think the misinformation has largely contributed to the skyrocketing in the the numbers that we're seeing here. Unfortunately, in Tennessee, there was a school board meeting that was basically shut down by protesters who refused to. Uh, except that there may be a potential of a mask mandate in, in their district. And so much so that they followed a doctor who was there to share information based on science, based on medicine. They followed him to his car and threatened him. And so we're continuing to see uh, this, this constant rhetoric that uh, goes against what the CDC and uh, the World Health Organization is informing us about in terms of the vaccination and wearing masks. So how do you combat that? You know, I it, it's hard to say because you have a, a large portion of the population that is just really, really committed uh, to their beliefs and their values uh, 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 in terms of how to like fight against this pandemic. So I think that has played a significant role, unfortunately. Um, and to juxtapose this misinformation against 94,000 children in the hospital, you know, that is, um, well, let me rephrase that to just juxtapose that against 94,000 children, uh, who have now been diagnosed with COVID, you know, it, that is the cost that we are paying. And in the last two weeks, America has had more new COVID cases than any other country in the entire world. So we're failing. And to know misinformation is a big part of that. The last thing I'll add, Anthony, um, you know, when you think about misinformation, media plays a significant role in distributing information, whether it's accurate or inaccurate. And one of the things that came onto my radar uh, this week that I feel like is really important for Minnesotans, but has not really been talked about a lot, is the fact that um, NPR's parent company, APM, announced a new president and CEO. Her name is Jean Taylor. And she she so happens to be the daughter of the owner of the Star Tribune, hmm. which I thought was very interesting. And that was my response. Hmm. <laughs> and and the 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 proximity game. Hmm. <laughs> Big hmm. And so <laughs> 
as as in in a in a landscape where information at its at its own, we are starting to 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 see folks turn more to the independent journalism because of the concern around 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 standards. We see the um we we see the 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 problem brewing right and so in a space where we need to rely on information to coalesce around the issues that matter this becomes yet another thing to juggle and handle and have to figure out as we figure out even what what ways in which we need to fight we talked about some of the fracturing in, in some of our past episodes I, I think it's 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 a really important to be able to get some frontline looks here our guest today um Chantel Allen is a school board member in St. Paul Schools, an on-the-ground warrior um, on, on the front lines of many of the battles here, and has some really, really interesting perspectives and insight from both the frontline movements side of things, all right, and with her involvement in Black Lives Matter, and she'll tell us more, of course, as she comes on, but also being able to, to step into the policy side of this as a school board member with some of the issues that we've already talked about. Welcome to the show, Ms. Chantel. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate this to be amongst such philosophers. This is amazing. <laughs> well, I guess I'll, I'm on the philosopher side. Miss Georgia regulates many, many, many different hats from independent journalist to philosopher to a documenter of the movie. And, and congratulations, Georgia. I forgot to say earlier on your uh, photo exhibit um, is well yes. documented. Oh, that. thank you. Yeah, that was beautiful, Miss Georgia. Thank you. So, so, Ms. Chantel, why don't you introduce yourself to folks who may not know, um, you know, your background, and then I'd love to get your perspectives on what you heard us discussing so far. So I am a fourth generation Rondo kid, uh, graduated from St. Paul Public Schools. My background is in youth work. Um, I spent the majority of my uh, career in the St. Paul Public Schools as a paraprofessional. And then just in the last couple of years, I decided to run to get on the board so I could reposition myself um, for some real change. Um, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. I'm a basketball coach. I'm the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Twin Cities. Uh, and I also have a nonprofit called Love First Community Engagement where we, there's a couple different initiatives. One is trying to interrupt the school to prison pipeline by providing success opportunities for young folks that have been stuck in the pipeline. Um, and then also just engaging with community uh, around joy and happiness and all the different resilient resiliency uh, tools that we have in the black community as much as I can. So Chantel, I know that you have uh, firsthand access to the uh, protocols that the St. Paul public schools took when they decided to uh, switch students over to distance learning. How would you say that impacted students of color? I mean, it had a tremendous impact. Um, but one thing that I want to keep pointing out is that we already had a major problem to start with. And so um, we just actually recently saw the statistics. I wish I had the paperwork with me so I could be specific but um, it looked at indigenous and African-American students had the worst response to COVID-19. But again, one of the things that the stat statistician wanted to point out was that we were already in a bad situation. And so then they also looked at students who had A's and B's, right? So those students also dropped a grade. Um, it was probably like, 40% of the students dropped a grade. Um, so everybody is kind of suffering in this situation. And, and one of the things that I keep 
bringing up even last year is like they, they want to use the words behind or like retention, those type of statements. And I want to keep reiterating the fact that the whole world came to a stop. So when, when they say we're getting behind, it's behind who? Because everybody came to a stop. And, and one of the things that is really detrimental, especially in the brown and black community, is retention. The idea that we are always behind and always having to catch up. And that's a lot of the things, a lot of the wordings and attitudes that play into us never really catching up. So in the uh, in the St. Paul Public Schools, what we're trying to do is just really look at where is every student at right now? And then how do we get those students where they're at right now, whether they were behind before or after the pandemic, where are they at right now? And how do we get them up to grade level now? Rather than really looking at it from a retention spot, we're just going to keep moving forward from wherever they're at. Um, but it, it was pretty rough. It's all, it always is, you know? You know, there's there's this interesting uh, nexus because I'm, I'm with a, a group of parents. My, my, my children are in St. Paul Public Schools. And one of the things that we saw with them is while um, the academic side tended to struggle, um, uh, and especially trying to figure out how to do what they're doing um, when they're used to a more socialized learning environment, um, we also saw, however, that some of the other things that they were facing and experiencing in schools, they didn't have to deal with. And so there's this really interesting... Um, uh, intersection between the academic side of their progress and their social emotional health, which which suffered in some because of the socialization issues, but they also didn't have to deal with some of the issues that they were having racially in the school. Um, and so I'm I'm curious how that is being discussed in in your um, in your from where you are in the schools. Well, that was in the report also, and it did talk about how African American parents. Um, did did bring that up quite often, the fact that their students didn't have to encounter microaggressions in the classroom and how that uh, allowed them to show up their whole selves. And they started to see their, their children flourish in ways that they hadn't seen before. Another thing that I like to bring up is like, although they're not meeting specific academic standards um, week by week or month by month because they were stuck in this pandemic, young people are brilliant. So they're learning something. Every single day, it may not be the specific things that um, that are, are pinpointed by Ed Minnesota or Minnesota Education, um, but they are learning something every day. So how do we take those skills that they did pick up and build off of that? How do we use those skills and, and start to apply some of the standards that they may have missed to some of the things that they already learned so that they have a quicker comprehension of it. And so I, those are some of the things that I've been really talking to the superintendent about and some of the upper administration and folks uh, teaching and learning those folks about um, how we should restructure education going back into it. Um, another thing I also want to bring up is St. Paul Public Schools did become an accredited online school. So everyone does have the option of not distance learning. It's different. It's it's strictly like online school where there's teachers that are online teachers um, and there's structure and uh, that kind of thing. So that so our students are getting that type of opportunity um, to, to do that because there are some students that thrived in that environment. Well, I know we're. I'm glad you said that. Um, and and Mr. George, I know you. I know you. You got questions too. I just wanted to, to comment on on that. Um, I'm glad to hear that because we weren't quite sure what option was going to be available for us. Because one thing that we as a family decided is that we're not getting COVID, and so we're going to keep our protocols. We're going to keep our protection until 
our kids can get vaccinated. They're under 12, and so they're not yet eligible. And so we were concerned uh, because the only option we had seemed to have it up until that point um, was uh, going back in person. And we were just we were considering the homeschool route. Um, so it's good to, to know. I'm, I'm curious, is the, does the online school, is it a high school, middle school only thing? Or what grade levels have access to that? It's a K through 12 online school that you can Got register it. for. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and I want to encourage families because I, I, I want everyone to stay COVID free too. Uh, and, and one of the things, one of our responsibilities as a school district is to look at this, not just from how can we keep COVID out of our classroom, but how do we prevent COVID from spreading throughout the communities, throughout mm-hmm. the city of St. Paul? And so I look at it on a bigger picture. We have a bigger responsibility um, in doing so. And so I want to encourage folks that um, are, are concerned to please take get enroll your child in online school um, stay safe as possible. I know that we have a resolution that will be on the table. Um, it looks like we have enough votes to pass that will mandate masks for everyone in all buildings. And so that'll be a good start. So as of this recording, a mask mandate had not yet been voted on by the St. Paul Public School Board. But if you want to find out if the resolution passed, you can visit their website at spps.org. I don't know how I feel about mandating a vaccine quite yet because I do want to respect everybody's religious beliefs and fears because some of these fears are legitimate. You know, um, historically, brown and black people have been used for testing in these type of situations when, when the unknown is out there. And so I understand the fear um, and, and I, and I want to respect that. I want everybody to be able to go and do it on their own terms and on their own timing. So. And I feel like distance learning for some may be a privilege, you know, that, that they don't necessarily have. For example, for parents who can't afford to um, stay home from work and they've been mandated to go back to work, you know, maybe distance learning is not an option for them. And specifically for students, who are under 12 that can't get the vaccine, parents can't stay home, can't do distance learning. And so families are left with no other option but to send our most vulnerable population at this point back into these schools. Chantel, what is being done in order to keep them safe? Well, I mean, we we definitely changed all the filters. That was last year. Um Mandating masks is is a big one because there was no mandated mask uh, in the summertime. And I think that that's where we kept running into our problems. I know when I popped in a building and I saw that, it it made me very concerned. And so, you know, mandating masks, um, that's, that's really, as far as, I mean, everything is so unknown right now, you know. We can encourage our staff and the adults and the high schoolers and the folks to get vaccines. I believe the vaccine, uh, vaccines will be available at all of the St. Paul Public Schools clinics in, uh, in the high schools. And so if students still haven't been vaccinated, they can go get vaccinated right at school. Um, you know, we, it's, it's, this is, a, this is hard, you know, it's, and it's, 
interesting that I came into this position. I came in to do something totally different. And here we are having to think about humans from a different perspective. (laughs) That's the story of 2020, right? (laughs) It is. It is. But one thing I am is a humanitarian. And I do recognize that we are in an urban city. And um, there's households that have numerous people that move in different directions every day. Um, and we have to take and take that into consideration. And so I'm not totally opposed to going back to distance learning, but I would like to give it a really strong try to get all of our schools open and everybody who can come back to school, back in schools, every teacher who can teach back in the building to teach um, and, and just really give it a strong effort of, you know, remaining safe with sanitizer and face masks. And if you think about it during the unrest, you know, that that was our saving grace. The people walking around with sanitizers and we were all masked up every single day. Out spending as much time outside, trying to distance as much as possible. I think that's a curious, um, that's a curious exemplar, especially in this season now where because vaccines are available to parts of the population, um, there are many decisions that organizations are making to say to shift their responsibility to folks um, to say, you know, do your personal choice, do your part, as opposed to saying this needs to happen to protect folks. Because the more spread happens, the more other um, the more other um, variations of the virus that can can happen. Viruses spread, uh, viruses change and morph by being able to spread and proliferate. And so there's, uh, you know, your your point about the larger picture, I think, is a very important one to have in front of us. I'm curious, since you brought up the protesting, um, you know, what was happening during the the the, the, unre- the uh, uprising, um, how is this affecting, you know, these, these things that we're talking about? How is this affecting that work? Uh, you know, I got to see you in action outside of the uh, gas station over off of Marion and Rice, you know, in response to the shootings that, were, that had happened over there and trying to really be present on the ground. Um, how do you see these things intersecting as that work continues with love first? Well, a lot of my work is done outside, right? And so mm-hmm. even in the unrest or in the uprising, we were outside a lot. And, you know, I think that we're just a lot more cautious. I mean, I think, I don't know if we can be more cautious than we were last year, but just remaining cautious. You know, I'm vaccinated but I'm still wearing masks in in public places. Um, I'm still being intentional about washing my hands. I'm still being intentional um, about using sanitizer and, and extremely intentional about how close I'm coming to my elders and to children around me, um, making sure that I'm not just spreading it around to other individuals. And, and I think that in the movement, because there's so many people that were on the ground that were our humanitarians, that's why they showed up, right? Because they are social justice-minded individuals. I think that um, in the movement, that's kind of the general sense, you know? Folks just want to take care of one another. We want to take care of everybody around us and, and family members and such. And so it becomes a, a just a natural response to... Um, continue to do the work because the work still needs to get done, but also continue to be extremely cautious in the process. Hey, would you say that you've seen uh, the the students be impacted by all that has happened in our community? Yes, 
a lot. And actually, um, it showed up a lot in in our surveys at the end of the school year when we were surveying uh, parents and students who talked a lot about um, not really having a space in the St. Paul Public Schools to express themselves. And uh, that's some of the things that we're really trying to shift this year, uh, trying to open up more, just more spaces. I mean, we implemented the uh, equity policy into the strategic plan. Um, our, our superintendent just had a awakening that happened in the last few months where he realized that the, that the equity, equity should not be a department or a equity person, but it should be uh, throughout the entire district and system of the public schools. And so we're readjusting how we're doing things in the St. Paul Public Schools to open up space for our brown and black students to be heard. Um, we just recently had to do uh, the assessment for the Rescue Act, the Rescue Act assessment, mm-hmm. um, to talk about some of the funds that are going to be coming in and how we spend those funds to uh, basically, here I am about to use the word catch up, not catch up, but how do we move forward from where we're at right now and end up in a space um, that is further than where we were supposed to be, right? And further than where we were. And so a lot of the data that came out kind of talked about that brown and black, indigenous and black youth and um, how the, academically they're showing up in school, how they were being heard in school. There was a lot of data on that. Um, and so the way that we're restructuring so that we can provide better um, support, uh, we're implementing these new WIND teachers. It's what, what I need now, a WIND teacher. So all buildings will have this new WIND teacher who may be an English teacher or a science teacher or something like that, but it would also give space for um, an extra PLC. And so then it also gives, the PLC is uh, the professional learning group that the, say like all the English teachers go to once a week. It will now give them space to do that twice a week and then also have extra time to do small group work with some of those students that are placed in different, uh, different levels of academia. And so it's it's doing it's given us a opportunity to address some of the problems that were happening before the pandemic, um, but also addressing what was happening during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I know a lot of um, a lot of folks are scrambling um, around those those dollars. You know, I should say that the the American Rescue Act, um, which was passed, is providing funds for state, cities, local um, municipalities, um, like schools and things like that to be able to service, rent county services, uh, to be able to provide, provide things for families. This is partly inclusive of, if I'm, if I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Sister Chantel, but the, um, the, um, for rent and things like that. Yeah, I believe the city is, and the county are looking at those, those options. Um, okay. Our dollars are specifically for uh, trying to, you know, revamp the school system so that we can handle some of these, some of these problems we encountered during the pandemic. I think it's a very important point that you made. You said it earlier too. And so I just wanted to underscore it. The fact that, that um, one, everybody was set back. And so when we look at the gaps that are here, we're looking more at the exposure of what's already present 
Um, and I think a lot of folks put a lot of emphasis on the gaps created by the pandemic. And you are pointing out very rightly so, backed by the by both your data and the data that, that we've seen for a while, that we already had these gaps. And so it's much more of an exposure of what was already there in the fault lines. Um, even though there is some exacerbation, it was already there. I think that's a very important point that you made. Exactly. And so the, the, they were already disengaged from the education system. And so then when we, you know, went to distance learning, put the word distance in between it, they were even more engaged, you know. Um, so that is the biggest problem that we're dealing with right now. And, and right now, how do we how do we kind of gear engagement in the indigenous and black communities around education? Um, and that's that's going to be our charge in this next year is how do we get them engaged? Because as soon as you can get a black, the sooner you can get a black or brown kid engaged in education, the further they go. Because the issue is not lack of intellect. The, the issue is lack of engagement. They're just not they're not tuned in to what's being taught. And when you look at that engagement, would you say that there are certain tools or or resources that you found to be more effective? For example, I know a lot of people emphasize the importance of arts programming within the schools because it is such an effective tool for engagement. Are there, are there tools or resources that you found in your career to be successful uh, with, with increasing that engagement? I mean, yeah, music and arts are always really high on the list, but the, the the easiest one is to give them their culture. And that doesn't matter who you are, whether you're indigenous, black, Asian Pacific Islander. It doesn't matter if you sit down and you start to talk about the lesson or the standard from the perspective of their own culture, then they get it, you know, and that's what's really been lacking in our school system for all of these years, forever, is, the, is being able to relate the standard or relate the academia that they're trying to get through to that person's uh, life and their lifestyle and, and things that they might encounter. And so I think that's going to be the biggest part is really trying to make it relevant, try to make, try to make education relevant to every single culture, which is hard because we speak 144 languages in the St. Paul Public Schools. But we can definitely do a, a big, bigger dive because if we're disengaging indigenous and black kids, you know, we've been here. Indigenous people have been here long before this even started. Right. So Dakota was spoken 10,000 years before the first white settlers arrived. I knew you knew that. <laughs> I knew you knew the exact <laughs> stuff, but that's exactly my point. So, you know, it's one thing to say we don't understand the culture of the Asian Pacific Islanders. They've only been here 60 years. We don't know the history. We haven't dug in. And that it's easy to say that, I guess, because I've only been here 47 years and I know it. So but either way, it's easy to say that. But how do you say that you don't know or you don't have the tools to engage indigenous folks? How do you say that you don't have the tools or you don't know how to engage black folks in America? It's just not okay. And so it's, I struggle with the idea of having, uh, and I'm using quotes in my right now, an urban teacher, right? Who doesn't have those tools in their pocket. I struggle with those teachers because our district is made up of 33% African-American, 34% Asian Pacific Islander, and then there's still percentages of uh, uh, indigenous folks, Latinx folks, 
You know what I mean? Uh, African, uh, African uh, migrants, all of those folks. So we only have barely 20% white American culture in our St. Paul public schools. So for the curriculum to be targeted in on that is, is almost absurd. Well, <laughs> you just you just went there. And so <laughs> that that particular the 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 the, the uh, learning that reflects the self, right? That puts it into our own context. But also, I think uh, one of the things that you're getting to is that it also honors, right? To have a child grow up and, and when you ask them the question, you know, who made the world what it is and the answers that they give to that question doesn't include anybody who looks like them or comes from their community. That's problematic because every culture on the planet contributed to to the advancements uh, of this nation and it's and, and many of them are not taught or passed through and you know I'm just curious because school districts across the country in 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 uh, let me say let me just ask this again school districts across the country are facing uh pushback from their from from communities who feel like given what you just said who feel like somehow what you just described is some type of indoctrination that should be resisted and banned even in the curricular spaces. Are you encountering that any of that pressure in the St. Paul schools? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I but just had to check. Be, it will come because we have had, you know, where we've, uh, you know, we, when we changed Linwood Monroe School. Oh, that's, um, my, that's my children's school. Yeah, now it's Global Arts Plus. Mm -hmm. And and I definitely, during that time, I was actually running for office and I encountered quite a few folks who felt like we were trying to change history. Mm -hmm. Now we're on the brink of changing Ramsey Middle School's name this fall. And so I'm sure that that, that will kind of stir up some more of that conversation about changing history. And it's not so much that we're changing history. We're not going to ignore Alexander Ramsey. We know that he exists. We're just going to tell the truth about who he was. Right. You know, you the, know he, the, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. He was a man who committed genocide in this space. And, and you know, he, he, he then had the largest lynching in the country on December 26th, when, which he attempted to do on December 25th on Christmas. Mm -hmm. And um, attempted to, 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 to hang 500, the first list that was sent to, 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 um, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln was 500 and they had to negotiate down to the 38 plus two. Wow. Yeah. See, so, I mean, when we look at individuals like that, we have to acknowledge the fact that there, there's something wrong with that. Because if we continue to uplift someone who does that, then there's people in the world that see that as what they need to be. Mm. And it's time for us to start moving in the opposite direction away from evil. It's time for us to start moving towards love. And, and that is uplifting something that was unbelievably evil. And so we have, to, we have to get rid of those names. We have to get rid of Patrick Henry. We've got to get rid of, you know, we had to get rid of Linwood Monroe. You know, I'm really thinking real hard about Washington, you know, and I know he was the first president and I'm not saying we're going to stop calling him the first president. I just don't know if that school should be named after him. You know, yeah. I mean, he he had slaves, and and are we going to continue to uplift these people who can who oppressed and created this system for us? I don't think that's okay. 
Yeah, and I was going to say, I think that you you raise a, a very valid concern. I mean, when you think about a school being named after someone, I mean, that's legacy. That That is one of the highest honors in a community, in neighborhoods that one could receive. And for your uh-huh. name to be in the mouths of, um, you know, intergenerational, you know, uh, bodies of people, generation after generation, like you're remembered. And so it it says a lot about our culture and our society. If we continue to uh, put people on a pedestal who have, as you said, committed evil acts, acts of hatred. And I mean, there are so many amazing people uh, that have come from Minnesota, that have come from St. Paul and Minneapolis, that That have done uh, so much service that has uh, transformed where we are economically, uh, where we, we where we are in terms of um, our own civil rights. We look at people like Josie Johnson and Mahmoud El-Khati. There are people in this community uh, that we could uplift who I think are much more deserving. Absolutely. And I mean, Washington High School is predominantly Asian Pacific Islander. And Marnie Zhang was actually, Chair Marnie Zhang was actually a graduate of that school. So now imagine if the name Marnie Zhang was on the front of that building. Hello. And the the pride that that would give all of those young people. And then what they would do is they would dig in and try to find out who, who is this Marnie Zhang? And when they start to see the individual that she was, the person that she, the way that she gave to the community, the way that she loved on the children, not just here in St. Paul, but she loved on children in Minneapolis too. The way that she gave herself though to community, I think it would really change how people saw themselves learning in that space because they'd be learning for a purpose. And, and I, we, there's so much we can go into that and it's well <laughs> just just for folks thought. who are listening who may not know um and you just you had to hit me right in the heartstrings thank you uh sister Chantel, because you do that every single time we talk um but sister marnie Zhang um was a Hmong community leader um school board member in saint paul who died early on um i oh, sorry i just gotta take a pause um I, I'll, I'll never forget conversations with her about her vision for for children in our in our school, and it made me. I was a proud supporter of not just her campaign, but also her 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 work. Um, and man, that just hit me. Um, but we lost her to COVID. Um, and too so soon. too soon, too soon. Um, you know, she was our, our our age. She was our generation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so early on from to COVID. And so, you know, the, the, the community hurt and pain, but, but also the beauty that comes with the community being able to name for themselves. I love, Georgia, how you brought, um, brought that into the mix. There are so many other possibilities that are there. I know Ramsey Middle School in Minneapolis went through their name change, and they did it with youth leading a community discussion about, let's generate some new names, given, um, given the fact that the, our namesake of our school once wrote <laughs> and put out in publication that the state reward for dead Indians has increased to $200 for every redskin sent to purgatory. This, this sum is worth more than all of the Indians uh, uh, east of the Red River are worth. I mean, this is, this is, this is 
problematic history. This is beyond problematic history. This is going to a school every day that for our indigenous families okays or cosigns their own genocide. We just can't have that. But the process that they went through to name the change the name was community focused. It was led by youth and it led to a beautiful renaming of that school to Justice Allen Page School. Um, it was powerful and we we can do that. That is possible. That is not an uphill battle. No, not at all. Not at all. And I agree. And then, you know, when we now you're bringing up the uh, Justice Allen Page and the work that he's doing is amazing um, with with the amendment, um, really just putting the pressure on. So I don't have the amendment in front of me, but basically it's a state amendment. Um, and right now the amendment says that the state of Minnesota only needs to provide adequate education. Adequate is the main word in there. And one of the things, two words that he's going to change that really is putting some fire into educators is that the state will prioritize in giving every single child a quality. Quality is the key word there. Quality education. I'll I'll read the statement for you. The Page Amendment makes quality public education a fundamental right for all children in Minnesota. It says, the state constitution currently guarantees children access to an adequate system of public education. The Page Amendment, named for the chief architect, former Supreme Court Justice Ellen Page, will make quality public education a paramount duty of the state. Public schools will be expected to fully prepare every child with the skills necessary to participate in the economy, our democracy, and society. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Love and it. when he first came with it, there was a lot of folks that were scared. They were fearful. They were against it. But how can you be against <laughs> quality education for all students? How can you be against that? You know, and here we are. Right. And so one thing that I see is shifting is school districts are coming up with these individualized teaching plans kind of like an IEP. So, you know, the individualized education mm-hmm. plan for students who have special ed services to ensure that they get everything that they need. Now they're starting to create these individualized teaching plans. Um, starting if you if your child goes to preschool and four at four years old, they start the plan there. And every year they revisit that plan. They revisit it with the parents. They revisit it with the student. And then they continue to build on it so that every single student is definitely being looked at as an individual for their individual skills. And, and the school district is actually partnering with the parent to build those skills, to grow that child into something, into an adult that everybody can that flourish, just allow her, allow the child to flourish, to be honest with you, um, in, in, in public school systems. And so they're making those adjustments now. Um, you know, they're trying to hurry up and get out the way, but I don't know if that's going to be enough. You know, I, I, I really believe in making it, uh, part of the constitution. Yeah. Because we can we can make practices now and we can make policies now, but somebody can come right behind us and just change right. those practices and policies. But if we put that in the state constitution, everybody has to make an adjustment and it has to sit there until somebody comes behind that and changes it. Well, I'll say that it is very inspiring to uh, be in community with you as you champion 
the uh, school to success pipeline. And as you continue to fight for more equitable education opportunities for our children, um, it, it really it gives me hope. And it as a parent in this community also restores my faith in um, the systems here, because uh, for some parents, when you look at those disparities, you look at the literacy rates, it can be uh, very disheartening and discouraging. Yeah, you know, um, Tish Jones, I think, really got my mind moving with a poem she did called Tracks. And she was basically talking about the general education, students that are in general education and students that get moved up to um, AP or IB, um, higher advanced level classes, and what happens to that general education child. But as I was working in the, in the special education realm, I started to examine what's happening in that area. And, and there's, a, there's a high level special education track um, for students who are usually just diagnosed because of behavior, but not because of intellect, but mm. yet because they're in a special education class, the literacy is moving slow because they're in the classroom with folks who may have delays, right? And so everything's moving slow, so they end up behind. Then also there's these, the students who can kind of teeter out of there and move into general education by middle school or high school, but they're in that lower than gen ed track. So they go to a, a lower level reading class, lower level math class, but it's still a regular high school credit class and they graduate in those lower level classes. Those two tracks have absolutely nowhere to go. If you're on the autism spectrum, then, you know, you, you can go to focus and beyond. But if you're just a high level special ed kid who's been misdiagnosed, you don't graduate out of high school with skills that can get you through community college. You, if you're in a lower ed level gen ed track, you will not be able to survive in technical school. And so we have to figure out how do we start to restructure our school system so that we can provide opportunities. One, for those that are stuck in the, I call those being stuck in the pipeline. Those that are being stuck in the pipeline right now. And then how do we sever that pipeline by making literacy engaging enough that all students are not just falling into those into those tracks naturally um, or put into those tracks. And so that's one of the biggest things that I'm really trying to do in building the school to success pipeline, provide tech, um, more text uh, classes in schools and skills so that those students students that are stuck in that pipeline can graduate out with a CDL license or graduate out with um, some coding skills so they can build websites. Those are some of the things that will take them from um, poverty to a living wage. And I think that's important. You know, Sister Chantel, we, we, we've only scratched the surface of our conversation on the education side, and we haven't gotten a chance to really dive into um, here as we close up, um, you know, the the boots on the ground that you provide. I mean, you're there in frontline and protest. You're there organizing. You know, you often see you and, and, and Sister Nakima and so many other folks who are who are helping to organize the demonstration side on the ground. And so we've got that whole side of, of your work to talk about. So we got to have you back. There's just no way. There's just no way about that because uh, we got to reconnect there. But one of the things that we always close our, sh our show out is by checking in with folks to say, how are you being you in this moment? So, so, so not, 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 who, 
what are you up to or what are you doing? But how are you? How how is Sister Chantel being Sister Chantel in 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 dealing with this current uh, reckoning that we are having right now or attempting to have right now? And we'll start with you. Um, just being intentional about self care, being intentional about when things start to feel a little too overwhelming, taking a long drive somewhere, clearing my head. Um, so that I can recognize that some, a lot of these problems can be solved. It's just going to take a lot of work and it's going to take more work than just, you know, a month's worth of work or a year's worth of work. This is a, this is a marathon and I'm probably going to be doing this work for the rest of my life. So when I need to take breathers, just take the breathers because the work ain't going nowhere, you know, so that's, that's mostly how I'm doing it. Sister Georgia, Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? You know, I would have to echo what uh, Chantel said. I feel like I am fully in a season of self-care and decompressing after all that I have been through, that we've been through this year. Uh, I kind of just thought maybe it was some things here and there that I was doing, but uh, many people asked me, um, you know, during the trial, how, how I was juggling everything, how I was managing everything. And I just told people that, um, it was a season, right. And I pushed through and I pushed through and I over, I overrode a lot of trauma I was experiencing. And so now that things have calmed down in my work, I'm taking time to decompress, um, you know, going on boat rides, getting in the sauna, going swimming with my kids. There's anything to uh, restore uh, joy and, and fill my spirit and process all of the things that I've endured this year. So I encourage other folks to do the same because our community has really, really gone through a lot in the last, I would say, two years. You know, for me, one of the things that... um I've started to do is to really focus on, and this goes to what Sister Chantel said earlier about knowing self, about the identity um, space. I have been really getting close to and, and very specific about what about aspects of my identity I am unwilling to compromise for access or um, or for the comfort of other folks. One of the patterns that um, are present in communities of color, particularly marginalized communities here in the United States um, is how often we are unaware of our switching to the comfort of dominant cultural space, whether it's our volume, whether it's how we show up, how we dress, what we um, choose to say or take issue with. A lot of it is geared towards the comfort of folks who, have, who, who, who don't have to experience the daily things that we do. And somehow we take on the ownership of that. And I've been really intentional about dismantling as much as I can, right? Because some of this is subconscious. But I've been really intentional about being unapologetic, not only about my identity, but my own needs. And it's not a selfish thing, but actually something that actually gives somebody else to build upon. If I tell you this ain't going to work for me, that doesn't have to be a confrontational thing, right? It's, it's often made that way because the, the focus is on the comfort of dominant culture. But it can be a space to build from because now that person has a scaffold to say, oh, this is a line. This is a boundary. And I've actually been in experiencing um, folks respecting those boundaries as I've been more unapologetic. And it has decreased my anxiety and allowed mm. me to actually build um, some strength and resilience in that way. Mm. That's good stuff. Well, I'm so thankful and grateful that I got my big sisters on the call with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Um, 
Sister Chantel, at some point, when you when we have you back on, I'll tell you the story of my first encounter with you. You actually snatched me up out of getting my behind whipped by somebody who was way too big for me to be fighting. Um, and I don't what? know that you remember that story. It was on right outside 909 Selby when I was younger. Huh. But um, interesting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I, I I'm you. glad. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you for that. You all you did was snatch me back, and you said you don't want that, and that was it. And that's all I needed. <laughs> you don't want that smoke. <laughs> you don't want you don't that. Want that. You don't smoke. want that. And you sent me. You sent me back in the direction of Golden Time, back towards Central. But um, okay. I, I want to thank you um, so much for being on the show, and 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 it's been a blessing to be able to check in with you. We always end um, with our our patron, our, our the model that's, that's what's become our model for bearing witness. So I'll kick it over to Miss Georgia to end us right. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the racial reckoning project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Mm-hmm.